This is Sit Rep on BFBS with Kate Chabot. As the international community agonizes over Syria, we hear one man's personal experience of the conflict. Is national security being put at risk by a Chinese telecoms company working in Oxfordshire? And we look at the relationship between defense and space when we talk to European Space Agency astronaut and former Army pilot Major Tim Peake. More than 75,000 people have died in the two years since the Syrian uprising began. Yesterday, President Assad's forces recaptured the town of Qusair from the rebels, while earlier this week, Britain and France declared they have credible evidence that chemical weapons have been used repeatedly against civilians. One of the first Western journalists to report on the conflict during the siege of Homs was the Sunday Times correspondent Marie Colvin, who broadcast an impassioned account to CNN about the suffering of innocent people a few hours before she was killed in a rocket attack. It's a complete and utter lie that they are only going after terrorists. There are rockets, shell, tank shells, um, anti-aircraft being fired in a parallel line into the city. The Syrian army is simply shelling a city of cold, starving civilians. Well, I'm joined now by photojournalist Paul Conroy, who worked with Marie and was seriously injured in the shelling that killed her. Paul, good to see you. Uh, Take us back to Syria in February 2012. What was it like in Homs? The situation in Homs was was an actual shock. We'd just spent two months in in Libya together in Misrata when that was under siege by Gaddafi's forces. Um, And we really thought we'd seen everything then, with regards to attacking civilians. When we arrived in Homs, the situation was... I'd never seen anything like it. It was... We used to count the shells, and we'd be counting 40, 50 per minute, and we gave up in the end. The, the place was levelled. There were no people to be seen. They were living like rats in the, the rubble, and there were no military there. It wasn't a military target. It was a civilian area, and it just rained. Every kind of high ordnance explosive you could name was thrown into that city 18 hours a day constantly. And you've written about the moment that Marie was killed in your book, Under the Wire. Describe what happened. Do you remember your last conversation with her? Yeah, yeah, I remember it very clearly. We were were trying to get to the field hospital, which was essentially a living room, um, where a a doctor and a vet worked. Um, We wanted to go there at 5am to avoid the snipers who were were positioned all around the neighbourhood. One of the people we meant to go with overslept, so we ended up getting up at 7 and then I heard the first explosions of the day. Um, and they were brackets and they were 120-millimeter Katusha rockets. Um, and they were 100 yards away either side, then 50 yards. And because I was an ex-artilleryman, I recognized the fire pattern. And I thought, oh, no, here we go. And as I thought that, um, one of the rockets blew a piece, blew the bedroom that we'd been sleeping in to pieces. Then another rocket hit the top of the house. A third rocket came in the side of the house. And all the time, someone was shouting, get out, get out. I'd run into the room that used to be a room, grab my camera, run back to get some shots of the of the chaos. Um, I dropped the camera, and as I bent down to pick it up, there was another huge explosion which blasted the front of the house out. Um, and I felt this... um been like being hit with a baseball bat on the leg. Um, I thought it was a brick or something. Um, I, I then um, bent down, touched my leg and my hand went through my leg. 
and not very nice. Kind of grabbed the artery, checked it was working, and immediately put a tourniquet on. That was my instinct, was to just get it tourniquet, stop the bleeding. I then thought, where's Marie? Took about three steps and just fell, really, into the rubble next to Marie, whose head was covered in rubble. And, but I felt a chest, and she Remy, was she was gone. Um, unfortunately, while I, che- while I was checking her, the, um, the drone above had spotted me, and so they started dropping, I think it was 82-millimetre mortars, into the street where I was, I was kind of trapped next to Marie. And what was your last memory of her alive before um, that The last words I actually remember, we were giggling as we came from the bedroom because we wanted to get to the field hospital before we got, before the French journalists who were with us woke up. So we were sneaking down this corridor going, shh, shh. <laughs> and Marie goes, oh, no, the snipers are going to be up. And in the same sentence, she goes, and the French... <laughs> and and that was it. They were the last actual... And it, I was just rolling over myself because we're sneaking about a room full of sleeping people trying to get our stuff up, and that's when that's when the attack happened. And you are convinced that you were deliberately targeted. Why? Oh, without that. Well, d- really, because of... A, a, because of the interviews we'd done the night before were, were very provocative, um, very touching, um, and they were live from Baba Amra, which was almost like putting two fingers up to the regime, saying, we're here, we're broadcasting live. And B, because exactly because of the fire pattern, this wasn't random fire. Mostly in Baba Amra, it was random fire. they just point the guns in one direction, blast it for an hour, move them. But this they bracketed, specifically bracketed, into that house. And when, when they got the target, they kept pumping rockets in, um, and I'd never seen that really happen in Baba Amra at all. Ironically, uh, despite that hole in your leg you talked about, you were taken to the field hospital for treatment after all, not to report on it, and you got out. How did you get out? Well, before we got out, we, we, we spent five days in a room, um, which they'd, in fact, got the coordinates of by, um, by a, a method. They'd got the coordinates of where we were being hidden. So before we escaped Bambaram, we actually spent five days in a room and they were just dropping shells on the building. And that was a so-called safe house. That was a so-called <laughs> safe house, yeah. I mean, and it was falling apart around us, you know, that every day another section of the building would disappear until eventually the Free Syrian Army came in and said, right, you're going. I had no trousers or shoes or anything. I said, can I have some trousers? I don't want to escape in my boxer shorts. You know, I didn't want that to happen. <laughs> they gave me a pair of trousers and a pair of pumps to put on. And they literally dragged us out, threw us in the back of pickup trucks, and it was all hell was breaking loose. There were rounds dropping before us, behind us. People were getting taken out. And they just put all the sick and wounded in a convoy, screamed out of Babaramna, tied me to a rope, dropped me down a hole, and then stuck me on the back of a, a chopped-down motorbike where we then drove three kilometres through a storm drain where I was thrown out the other side and then kind of carried and walked for the next three, four kilometres to um, to a, another safe house where I was treated again by another vet who all the wounds had opened up at that point, so they kind of quickly stitched them back together. And you eventually made it over the border? Yeah, and then three days to cross the main battle lines to the border with Lebanon. What's incredible is, is the kindness of the people who volunteered to help you, many of whom paid with their lives. Indeed, yeah, um, and, you know, that is something I can, you know, I, I can't repay, I can't bring them back. But, um, you know, that was one of the reasons for the book, was to show just exactly what was happening and, and the kind of people and the, the, the generosity of spirit of the Syrian people in a time when they were under the most 
unbearable pressure. You mentioned your, your work as a soldier before you got into photojournalism. What is it about war zones that you find so compelling? Um, well, I didn't. Initially, I came out of the army and I, w I became a sound engineer. And then I slipped into it. I went to the Balkans. But all of a sudden, with a camera in my hand, in that scenario, I thought the time in the army had slipped by. And But the training became... It was ingrained in you. So when they did start shelling... But, it's, I mean, quite often, anecdotally, when you speak to people who've been in the armed forces, they talk about war zones and say they've never felt more alive. And it's almost like an addiction to some people to actually be in the thick of it. Did you, do you feel it's the same for you? No, I, I mean, that's, I think that's a bit of a misnomer with journalists. I mean, I, we're, st <laughs> we're storytellers, um, but, you know, the, the fact that the stories we like to tell, that, that you can look at war in two ways. You can look at it on a geopolitical level, the politics of it, the ins and outs, the Whitehall, the, the penthouse... Penthouse, Pentagon. <laughs> um, but at the other end of the scale, you've got the people sitting on the ground in the streets, the women, children, etc., whose voices, unless people go in, are very, very rarely heard. And that's, I mean, of course, there's an excitement about coming out of it alive. Mm. Um, but I don't think people go in to get shot at. Well, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is also with us today. Hello, Christopher. The, the town of Kazar, as we said earlier, has fallen back into the regime's hands this week. Is this a turning point? Is Assad actually gaining ground? Or is it just a sign the war is going to continue for much longer? Ten or eleven months ago, you wouldn't have believed it's possible for Assad to be in this position that he is now. now and did you think so, Paul? I, th I thought he'd have, um, something would have happened within that year that yeah. would have brought down the regime. Mm. It's, it but the point is, is, is that Assad hasn't been brought down yet, and this is going to go on for some, some considerable time. And when you look at what's been happening in Kazir, and you look at the sort of pictures that uh, people like Paul are sending back, you start to think, now, hang on, that was a town... Now it's you, you, you can't even make out a single building that is still a building. And I think this is the sort of difference between the wars that you normally cover, which is sort of state to state or, you know, NATO goes into wherever, whereas, say, Paul would then maybe be embedded relatively, relatively safely with a, with a, with a unit, right? Um, and there would be a medical centre, there would be a, uh, a, I don't know, a PR centre, information centre. And then the big difference is, if Paul gets hit, then the guy next to him, when, you, when you're in the gunners, say, uh, the guy next to you is now a fully qualified medic. Yeah. And you get back and you're in Birmingham in 24 hours. What you're doing is the sort of things, obviously, that people did in... I suppose late 1930s, the Spanish Civil War. You're right there. You only can go to the front line. And the guy next to you, you were very lucky. You got the vet yeah. to look after you. Uh, and and the veterinary surgeons know how to do it. Uh, and Paul, <laughs> on the political side of things, you've been quite dismissive about the peace negotiations or the efforts to have <coughs> them and about the red line declared by the US should evidence of chemical weapons be found. Um, has anyone actually consulted your opinion within the British government about your experiences in Syria? Syria? They did initially. When I got out initially, um, I, I, was, I was phoned up by David Cameron, William Hague, and I gave them... They essentially said, what, you know, who are the FSA? What are the FSA? What are their goals? What are their aims? Um, which I happily gave them. You know, I, I, they were very local people trying to defend their neighbourhoods. Of course... Um, the situation now, because of the, the vacuum that's been left for a year, um, nobody did anything, and that, that space was filmed. Um, Paul, 
you've got David Cameron and William Hague want to give weapons to the rebels, whoever they are. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I, do you think they should? I think it's too late now. Um, because because of the situation on the ground, there are weapons there. They could do with anti-air weapons. I think what is actually needed is the Syrian Air Force needs to be grounded, kept oh. on the ground, or a no-fly zone with a protection zone along the Turkish border. I think now the weapon things... It's good that Britain are making a move towards trying to stop the death and the violence, but I think that was something that perhaps a year ago... All right, Paul Conroy, Conroy thank you very much for your time today. And Paul's book, Under the Wire, is out today. Sit rep with Kate Still to come are the Chinese trying to infiltrate Britain's phone network, and we talk to British astronaut and former Army helicopter pilot Major Tim Peake. PFBS Sit rep. NATO defence ministers have agreed the broad outlines of its next mission in Afghanistan when the withdrawal of combat troops is completed next year. The alliance's Secretary-General, Agnes Fowaz-Musson, says resolute support will be based on a limited regional approach with operational centres in Kabul and around the country. US Defence Secretary Chuck Hagel has said America will take a key role in the south and east with Italy and Germany leading in the north and west. No further details of British involvement post-2015 have been announced other than its commitment to the officer training academy for the Afghan National Security Forces. Meanwhile, the transfer of detainees captured in Afghanistan by UK forces into the Afghan judicial system is to be restarted. Transfers were suspended last November when evidence came to light that detainees could be at risk of mistreatment. Last week, the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond defended the decision to keep up to 90 Afghans detained at Camp Bastion's detention centre. Well, earlier I spoke to BFBS report to Sally Lockwood in Camp Bastion and I asked her what she knew about the decision. We know the MOD have been looking into the treatment of Afghan detainees since last year and that the Defence Secretary Philip Hammond's now satisfied that they'll not risk mistreatment in Afghan custody. The situation came to light last week when lawyers representing some of the detainees claimed that 85 Afghans have been held for up to 14 months at the detention facility here in Camp Bastion. The Defence Secretary conceded at the time that the number of suspected extremists being held wasn't ideal but explained that it was unusually high because he'd stopped the transfer of detainees to Afghan detention facilities due to fears of mistreatment. The Secretary of State did, however, reject other claims made by lawyers that the facility at Camp Bastion was in any way secret or unlawful. The MOD makes no secret of the fact that they arrest individuals who are a threat to British troops and detain them for intelligence purposes before handing them over to the Afghan judicial system. And detention of suspected extremists is legal under the UN security mandate. Why has the change come about? Well, it may look like a knee-jerk reaction after last week's media coverage, but MOD sources have told me that their decision to restart the transfer of prisoners was scheduled before the media reported on this. Since the Secretary of State's decision in November to suspend prisoner handover, the MOD has been liaising with Afghan authorities on the kind of treatment they'll receive in Afghan custody. And Mr Hammond is now satisfied that it's safe to restart this process. And when will it restart? The MOD said detention of individuals will restart after a period of 21 days. From then, the normal practice will be to hold prisoners for up to 96 hours before transfer, unless there are extenuating circumstances. They've said transfer will be to the Afghan-controlled detention facility at Parwan, which is within the US military base in Bagram Airfield. 
And in a statement today following the decision, Philip Hammond said he hopes that they will no longer face any further legal impediments in the British courts, which could prevent them from transferring these detainees and forcing them to keep them for even longer in Camp Bastion. But it's still unclear whether a High Court hearing on unlawful detainment, which is scheduled for late July, will now take place. That was Sally Lockwood speaking to me earlier. A group of MPs is warning Britain's national security could be put at risk by the involvement of Chinese firms in the UK's telecom systems. In a highly critical report, the Parliamentary Intelligence and Security Committee warned that attempts by ministers to balance the need to encourage Chinese investment in the UK with national security had resulted in an unacceptable stalemate. Well, James Blitz is Defence and Security Editor at the Financial Times. James, good to speak to you today. There seems to be particular concern about one Chinese company. Tell us more about Huawei. Yes, the concern is about Huawei and in a nutshell, it's a huge company, um, about $35 billion in, in value. It is very closely linked to the Chinese military and the Chinese state. And in 2005, uh, British Telecom, BT, um, announced that Huawei would be providing a lot of the equipment that BT needs for the development of the, of, of the infrastructure of the telecommunication network in the UK. And so Huawei, over the last seven or eight years, has established this position where it is providing all of the, the, the major equipment in our telephone network in Britain. And the fear is that they might have some what's called a backdoor capability to spy on the network or to completely dis- disrupt or dismantle it in the event of conflict. And that's the concern that this committee was looking at. And they also said that staff from GCHQ should take over the running of their cyber security elevation centre known as the CELL. Um, What's all that about exactly? Yeah, I think we need to make two points. First of all, there's, this report is not saying definitively that Huawei is doing any of this negative, worrying work. There have always been suspicions about it, but it's not saying that uh, there's definitely something going wrong. Although it's also saying one just can never be 100% sure. It's such a complex world, telecoms. There are so many codes and protocols you need to go through to find out what's happening. As far as that cell is concerned, what happens, what the government's wanted to do is establish a kind of organization where Huawei meets with security figures and, uh, and, and experts and basically has every, all of its equipment regularly tested and all its updates tested to make sure that there's nothing there that's going wrong. And what the Intelligence and Security Committee has said is that this cell, this body, just doesn't work rigorously enough. It's not staffed with enough GCHQ officials. In fact, it's not run by GCHQ. It's actually run by Huawei. And so... Its concern is that this has to be a lot more arm's length from the company and much more rigorous in its approach. Christopher, um, the report says Huawei has signed contracts with BT, O2, TalkTalk and EE. Is it too late to do anything about it? Uh, It's not too late to do anything about what happens in the future in as much that there's there's a lot of movement. When David Cameron uh, was talking to us, a guy called uh, 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 Ren Zhenghui, and uh, Ren Zhengfei is the founder of this organisation. He is the man that's put in more than the billion pounds investment into it. And what Cameron doesn't want to do is upset this whole investment programme. And because this is not simply a China state company, it is in fact a privatised company. It's a private company in theory, and it certainly is in, 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 when, it's, when it's in Europe. What they desperately need is a checks and balance 
which wasn't put in the, fut- in, in, in the first, in first place when the company first went to ba- Banbury and set up a lot of subsidiaries as well. And it's the monitoring of what the company is doing, which is a very difficult thing, and it could start to upset the whole balance of this 1.3 billion investment. That's unlikely, but it could do it. James, without, without suggesting that there's any kind of uh, bad intention with what this company is able to do, what, what's its potential capabilities if there were? If it had a backdoor capability um, and it, had, it, it had, was getting up to stuff that we didn't know about, it could do an awful lot. I mean, first of all, cyber espionage, as Christopher, I'm sure, will know, is one of the major worries coming out of China and Russia these days. They're taking a huge amount of intellectual property off British companies. It's a really big worry, and so this would give them leverage on that. But much more if it came to a major conflict with China. One can't imagine the circumstances, of course, but if one did, they would have a, a, they could have a very significant capability to completely down our entire telephone network and telecommunications network. And in the age we're in, that's worrying. Now, I stress once again, there is no evidence they're getting up to anything. There's no evidence that they have created some kind of residual capability that would allow them to do this. But that is the, the risk that is there. And as Christopher said, the worry really is that at, at economic in the sort of economic conditions we're in at the moment, people like David Cameron and the government are terribly clean not to upset the Chinese. But what this report is saying is you've got to balance the economic benefits you want to get from relations with them with managing your security profile, and that isn't being done enough. All right, James Blitz from the Financial Times, thank you for your time today. The military has a long track record in pioneering and supporting space ventures. Indeed, the first man in outer space was Senior Lieutenant Yuri Gagarin. Well, Britain's first official astronaut has been recently announced. Major Tim Peake is a former helicopter test pilot with the Army, and he'll join the International Space Station for six months in 2014. Well, Tim Peake joins us now from the European Space Agency in Cologne, Germany. Hello, Tim. Good to speak to you. Why does the UK need to be involved in manned flight to the International Space Station? Good afternoon. It's good to talk to you too. Uh, well, it's a good question. There's a number of reasons, really. Um, first and foremost, I think, is that it's good for British science. There's a, a great amount of uh, really fantastic and interesting microgravity science. It's called microgravity because you're, you're orbiting around the Earth in weightlessness. And in, the, in that environment, we can learn a lot of new things, and we are already learning lots of new things, which are helping us back here on Earth in areas like medicine, for example. And the UK is very strong in science, and this is certainly an area of science that we have yet really to to break into. So it's good for British science. It's going to be good for British industry because the money that we invest in human spaceflight will be rewarded, if you like, back to British companies. So they'll get industrial contracts, and that will be good for jobs. It'll be good for the economy. And it's also good for British education because clearly... You know, people are interested in space from a young age. It gets people interested in science and engineering, and that will have a knock-on effect in future years with our population that will become uh, better, if you like, better educated in science and engineering. So what tests exactly will you be carrying out? Well, there's going to be a number of experiments. They're kind of, they always on a rolling basis, if you like. So when the crew goes up to the space station, it's only within the, the one year before their tour of duty that they'll actually find out the exact science that they're going to be doing. But to give you a flavor, um, me- medical experiments that I mentioned before are always ongoing. We're testing vaccines to try, or t- uh, testing viruses on board the stations to try and produce vaccines. We're looking at material sciences. We can blend metal alloys together in zero gravity, and you can get far, far stronger, lighter materials. 
uh, we're doing space uh, biomedicine, human physiology experiments, fluid physics experiments. So there's a whole plethora of different uh, scientific activities that's going on. This will be a near-Earth flight. Have you been asked to carry out any military or commercial intelligence? Not at all, no. The, the European Space Agency is purely a non-military organisation and so are all the international partners that are involved. Uh, now, clearly, each nation uh, might have their own national space agencies that might be involved in that kind of activity. But in terms of the International Space Station and in terms of the European Space Agency, it's purely civil activity. Christopher Lee, why is the military so closely linked to space exploration? It has been. October, uh, right from the beginning, October 1957, yeah? um, suddenly people went rushing into the streets because there was a Sputnik. The first Sputnik, the first satellite, was put into orbit by the Russians. Uh, Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, was the American president and said, well, the little guy up there is, is, is really brilliant, that little satellite going round every 90 minutes. Problem is, if they've got a rocket that's powerful enough to put it into orbit, therefore we are seeing something which we dreaded, and that was the beginnings of, of ICBMs, sort of intercontinental ballistic missile rate. It is absolutely possible. And then if you jump forward, I suppose, to, well, in the 60s, they have fractional orbital bombardment, weapons actually in space and then by the time you get to the 1980s Ronald Reagan was saying that we've got to use space uh, technology perhaps that we, we we can actually develop in the future which will counter uh, uh, ballistic missile attacks anti-ballistic missile systems so the military has always seen literally in Victorian terms has seen space literally as the high ground in any, 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 any form of warfare. And we were talking about cyberspace earlier, or cyber, uh, cyber earlier. You could, from uh, if you were going to go into a war, into a general warfare, one of the first things you'd probably do is degrade the space systems like the satellite systems and the GPS systems, for example. What exactly does the Outer Space Treaty cover? Well, in the 1960s this was produced, and it, it fundamentally says you mustn't put weapons in space. Um, but like all treaties, if you really decided that it was absolutely necessary, that's what you would do. And at this stage, it ain't necessary. And do you see wars of the future being conducted in space? I think that uh, degradation of systems rather than anything else. Uh, an intercontinental ballistic missile means that it, it, you know, it, it, it goes up... <laughs> And it gets it that sort of beyond the atmosphere and comes down. That is, in 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 some ways, it's a sort of a, a, an effort of space war. But if you take what keeps, I don't know, average motor car um, on, on on track with its Tom Tom uh, GPS system, that's all in space. Uh, we work in space far more now. We rely on space, and it can be the degradation of your systems, and that's why space war is quite a legitimate sort of term in, 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 in the way the military sees it. Tim Peake, on your mission, psychological profiling made you the right man for the job. Did your military training help to make you the right person? It certainly did, yes. I think right from an early age, you know, the military gives you a certain way of uh, thinking through problems, which can often be very clear and, and very logical, um, and that kind of thought process certainly helps when you apply it to many different situations. And going through the selection process, um, I was able to use my training in order to, to tackle each task as it came, whether that be a, a sort of psychological profiling task, whether it be a team-building task, working with other people to achieve a, a common goal. Um, and later on during my training as well, of course, I've been able to apply that uh, in, in the, the Nemo mission I did where I was living underwater for 12 days um, in a very confined space with a small group of astronauts and also in, in a cave in Sardinia. So 
you, you always draw on the experience that you've gained throughout your life. And for me, spending nearly 18 years in the army, of course, I had a huge amount of experience to draw, to draw on. And what kind of training are you undergoing now, physical and mental, in the run-up to the mission? What will it involve? Well, the training really is involving learning about the, in much more detail about the Soyuz spacecraft itself, which is going to be the only space vehicle at the moment that can transport astronauts to and from space since the shuttle retired. Um, so I need to learn about that in much more detail. Also, the International Space Station is really um, a, a mixture of a number of different laboratories, Russian segment, an American laboratory, a Japanese laboratory, European laboratory, uh, Canadian robotic arm. So you have to become an expert on all of those different systems. That takes right. a lot of uh, time and effort. All right. Um, we all know about astronauts doing spacewalking. That's another element of training that takes a long period of time. We call it EVA, extravehicular right. activity. Um, and you have to learn how to do that not only on the American system but the Russian system as well. And then, as I said before, the science. That, that will take a long time in, in getting ready for the scientific. All right. Major Tim Peake, thank you very much for your time today. All the best. Um, just before we go, Christopher, let's talk about President Obama's new appointment in his uh, yeah. National Security Advisor. Briefly. He's taken uh, Susan Rice from the United Nations and he's made a National Security Org, uh, Advisor. Uh, she has put one question to him, I understand, last night, which is very important. Is Syria a Rwanda, in other words, humanitarian effort, or is it Iraq, uh, where you've got to figure out who is the good guy and the bad guy? And right. Unless you can sort that one out, you cannot do Syria. All right, and there we must leave it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. Bye-bye for now. Sports, sports and music, music for the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.